The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, quit pulling the Christmas taffy and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 301 with guest Joe Duffy, recorded live Tuesday, December 11, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wonders if Mexican sheep could speak, would they say... Please Navidad, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard here on December 25th, Christmas Day. Well, Christmas it's actually Day. not right now, but... No, through the magic of radio, we're doing this ahead of time. That's when the show is published. So, right. interesting. You might be wondering why we chose this year to just keep recording shows throughout the holiday season. We didn't do that last year. Yeah, and I'm not doing it for run-ass, but, uh, you know, for DNR, they've got listeners all over the world, and and That's right. hey, some of them don't celebrate Christmas. Some of them, this is a work day. Yeah, this is a work day for some people. So, uh, let us be your Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's just get right to Better Know Framework for today. All right, sir, what do you got? All right. Today I'm going to talk about custom enumerators Excellent. and custom collections because this actually came out of a, a real-world problem. You're making a custom collection that's got a couple of different types that are involved in order to, uh, in order to return an item, right? So you might have – maybe you've got an index collection. Maybe you've got a, a, a separate base collection and you want to be selective about um, – what's coming out, whatever it is. Maybe you just got a couple of different types, a couple of different objects that have, to be, uh, that have to be used in the process of pulling out your items in a collection. Well, it's really difficult then to, uh, to implement a custom collection unless you have a custom enumerator for, right. for those, for that, that, because the enumerator needs access to those objects. So to do that, you're going to create a class that implements iEnumerator. And um, that's all I'm going to say about it. I mean, it's a complex thing, but uh, the documentation is really good. And uh, when I was working on this, it didn't take me long to figure it out. So iEnumerator, that's what you use to make a custom enumerator so your for each returns an object of the correct type. Right. And there you go. Richard, what you got today? I got a kudos email from a good friend of ours, Erwin Blanc. Erwin! Erwin says, hi, guys. No exciting stories about under which circumstances I would listen to DNR as physical exercise is still my future planning. <laughs> and making love while playing DNR just doesn't sound right. <laughs> Except maybe if you would present it in a Barry White imitation. But let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but just wanted to congratulate you. 
I do have a question for Carl, though. Okay. Weren't you supposed to get rid of the Kiwi Canuck by episode 150? <laughs> What's up with that? Get rid of him after show 300. That would give him two spare hours of podcasting, and we'd have daily run-as radios. Oh, yeah. Or better still, lock him in Pwop Studios, and he can do both run-as radio and .NET Rocks daily. So, Kiwi Canuck, is that a real term, or did he just make that I up? I think he made that up. That's I don't pretty know. funny. I mean, the folks that are from New Zealand are often referred to as Kiwis, and, yeah. you know, once in a while, people call Canadians Canucks, so yeah. I'm a little bit of both. Yeah. There you go. Anyways, congrats on show 300, and I can't wait for August 2014. Go ahead, do the math. You know you want to. I think Yeah, that's, or when I did the math. So, that would be show 1,000. Yeah. Cheers, Erwin Blanc, the Netherlands. We'll have to change it to dnr1k.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, yeah. What's up with that? Why am I still here? Yeah, why are you still here? I don't know. Maybe it's because uh, it's working out. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of working out, uh, you remember the Sleepless in New York that we did uh, yes. in October, or November, or September, whenever it, it was? It was September. September. Well, uh, the, the guys at Infusion are bringing the Sleepless in New York on the road for the Sleepless Road Show, which they're calling the Ultimate Office Dev Weekend. And uh, beginning January 12, 2008, the deadline to apply is January 6th at 11.59 p.m. And you can apply at infusion.com slash sleepless. They're going to uh, take the show on the road, bringing the best of SharePoint, Office Development, and Silverlight training to you for a chance at $100,000 in prizes, including an all-expenses-paid trip to Microsoft's Office System Developer Conference in San Jose. They're coming to Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., bringing SharePoint's elite, including the Microsoft product team members and SharePoint MVPs who are going to train you on SharePoint. And they're also going to provide a mystery game show. There'll be an overnight developer competition, of course. And uh, for the winning team, you get an all-expenses-paid trip to uh, Microsoft Office System Developer Conference. If you think you got what it takes, apply now at infusion.com slash sleepless. All right, Richard, let's introduce Joe uh, for the second time on .NET Rocks. Joe Duffy is a lead software engineer on the Parallel Computing Platform team at Microsoft, where he leads a team creating the next generation of concurrency libraries for the .NET framework. He writes frequently on his blog at uh, bluebytesoftware.com slash blog, uh, and is wrapping up his next book, Concurrent Programming on Windows 2008 with Addison Wesley, and enjoys playing guitar, writing music, and studying music theory in his spare time. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thanks, Carl. Glad to be here. Did we discuss the fact that you're a guitar player the last time you were on the show? No, we didn't, actually. You've been, you've been holding that little uh, nugget from me. Yeah, I've actually... I've been playing for like 12 years or so now. So I've been playing for quite a bit. Do, do you ever stop? Do, do I ever stop? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I've been playing for 12. It's like grandma's been running for 20 years. Somebody ought to stop her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I did stop for a little while. When I first started in the whole technical industry, I didn't really have time for it. And then yeah. as I get older, I guess I, I start putting more value on actually my sanity and doing things that I actually enjoy doing. So I take a break from the computers once in a while to play some music, but not as much as I'd like. I love that line. I, as I get older, I value my sanity more. <laughs> yeah. That's true, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I think we have to work harder at maintaining it. Yes, yes. So real quick uh, geek guitar thing. Have you seen Gibson's new uh, self-tuning guitar, Les Paul? No, I haven't. They have a self-tuning guitar where you can actually pick the, the 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 tuning that you want with a dial, and then it adjusts and keeps adjusting itself so it never goes out of tune. Wow. Yeah, that's what I said. That's fancy. I mean, pretty soon you won't actually even have to play the guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Gibson self-playing guitar. Well, for a guitar <laughs> hero, right? Oh, yes. Oh, don't even get me started on Guitar Hero. <laughs> oh, no. This is the wrong crowd for Guitar Hero. You yeah. two, look out. Don't you ever have the urge to, like, go to a Guitar Hero contest with, like, a Marshall stack and, you know, and just yeah. shred it, you know, and show them what, like, real guitar playing is? <laughs> Actually, it's, 
funny. Um, I was actually recently at a conference in Sweden, Oradev, and I gave a talk. And just before my talk, I decided, you know, I was walking around the, the expo hall, and it turned out they had some Guitar Hero um, little thing going on. And I didn't know what, what it was, so I was trying to release some tension by just playing a little Guitar Hero before my talk. And I played, and a woman came up to me afterwards and said, hey, we're having a contest. You just had the highest score of the day. Do you want to enter into the contest? I said, oh, sure. <laughs> so I came back later, and it turns out that my score survived, and I won and wow. got a free iPod Nano. <laughs> wow. So it does, it does pay off to play Guitar Hero in your spare time. Wow. <laughs> well, all right. This is, topic is near and dear to my heart, of course, because um, you know I've I decided a while ago to just endure the pain and torture that is trying to understand multi-threaded programming and and dive in and you know it just seems that the more i think i know the the more it slips away (laughs) you know probably a pretty common experience the deeper you get into it the more you go like oh my god are you kidding me yeah it it is difficult and so unfortunately at this point it's kind of a necessary difficulty. So that's why um, one of the things my team is doing is looking at the what to do in the .NET framework for future releases to make it a little bit easier so everybody out there doesn't have the same experience that you've had. Um, I would say you're probably kind of an early adopter. A lot of people out there are just now starting to get their first taste of concurrency. So right. as they do that, they'll probably start having the same experience that, that you've had. Has the background worker helped for a lot of uh, atomic things. In so the background software. worker is great for handling integration with uh, UI. Yeah. It, it turns out that UI programming is a little bit different. Um, over the years, people who have been developing GUIs, you know, dating back, including Windows Forms and Windows Presentation Foundation, they've kind of created their own special threading model where you know, there's one thread that is responsible for handling messages on the GUI thread, or on the GUI. So any button clicks, for example, have to be processed by the special GUI thread. And because there's only one of them, you don't want to block it. And so what the background worker helps you do is offload work to avoid blocking the GUI thread and then rendezvous back later on to do things like progress bar. You know, once the background work is done, you might want to paint something to the screen. Yeah. It helps you do that to, to ensure that you maintain a responsive UI. Yeah. So this is kind of a different area than what my team is focusing on. You guys are you guys are dealing with the eventuality that we're going to have 80 cores on a CPU pretty soon and people are going right. to want to be able to take advantage of that for not just right. one background thread but a whole bunch of them. Exactly. And so, you know, how do, how do you take something today that runs on a single thread and represent it in your program in a way that still feels natural? Um but such that it scales into the future when you're adopting dual core, four core, 64 cores, and upwards. You know, the the old way of developing software was, you know, you write your code, and if it doesn't run fast enough, you kind of go on vacation or go on a sabbatical, and by the time you come back, it runs good enough now. Right. So in the old days, you know, you'd see game game manufacturers releasing games that were really beyond even the computers that were out there, and then the next generation of computers come out and the games run perfectly fine um, because the sequential kind of clock speed continue to increase indefinitely year over year, uh, doubling every 18 months or so. And you've seen that in the past few years actually declining, right? Yeah. We've been stuck around 3 point something gigahertz for a while. Right? Yeah, there, there were a few P4s out there that were doing 4 gigahertz. Yeah. But the whole P4 line has been dropped and we went back to the what was really the modified P3 core and dropped down to 2 gigahertz again. I think we're creeping almost back to 3. Yep. But either way, we you know, that whole track is gone. Right. We're now right. going more and more cores. So, Joe, is, is software transactional memory really the sort of the cutting edge of, of what you guys are doing? Or do you have something totally different up your sleeve? And let's talk about STM anyway. Okay. Well... Just in general, to give you kind of the broad picture of what we're working on, so there there are a number of problems when it comes to concurrency, from how do you find the parts of your program that could benefit from running on multiple cores? You know, 
where are you spending most of the time in your program? Is it right. that you're blocked on the disk or on the network all the time? If yes, then you know concurrency will help you for responsiveness reasons, like we talked about uh, around the GUI thread. But it's probably not going to help you attain much better performance. Yeah. What you really need to find is kind of the compute-bound parts of your program that are doing the heavy lifting, and that's kind of what you want to paralyze. So once you've found that, then you need to, you need to represent that part of your program in a way that it will actually scale. Right. And today, that's not the case because you're writing for loops and function calls. It's all kind of sequential imperative programming, and that is not going to auto-parallelize, huh. at least not today. And then once you've found those parts and you've represented those parts in a way that it will run in parallel, well, is it safe to run those parts of your program in parallel? And right. sometimes the answer is yes. You know, if you get lucky, this is what we call kind of an embarrassingly parallel problem, which is... The problem is just set up in a way that you can just divide it up almost indefinitely and it will run completely independently. So a ray tracer is kind of an example of an embarrassingly parallel problem. Hmm. You basically have a scene that's read-only, and then for every pixel on the screen, you just need to trace a ray, and it's a very compute-bound problem, and every single pixel is independent of every other. So that's a simple case. But what if there's lots of sharing going on? You know, threads may be communicating with one another, doing um, writes to shared state. This is where something like software transactional memory comes into play, uh, which really is on the cutting edge of research. Uh, this has been probably one of the most actively researched areas in parallel computing in the last, you know, three or four years. It's been an ongoing evolutionary process of trying new things and figuring out that they don't work, going down a different path. I think most people have kind of figured out what they want the semantics of transactional memory to be. It's yeah. still an open research topic as to how to efficiently implement that. Now, when we say transactional memory, are we talking about just locking memory or being able to roll it back? Both, actually. Which okay. Is which is great because it's not, this is one of the things, transactional memory is not just limited to parallel programming. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could roll back partial updates to in-memory state? Like you've added right. a bunch of elements to a, a list, suddenly you decide you don't want them to be in the list anymore. What if you could say, well, roll that back and put the program back in a consistent state and let me restart? How about exception handling, right? Right. You get an exception that's everything's all buggered and you want to just go back to what it was a few seconds ago. Sure. Just the ability to programmatically declare a transactional boundary, begin an execution block, do whatever you want, and at any time to say, go back to that transactional boundary. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah, powerful. So Yuval Lowy actually had a, an article a couple of years ago about how to build kind of a mini transactional memory system using the system transactions technology that was in uh, 2.0. And so what the research is around is kind of integrating that more into the runtime, into the languages, into the compilers to make it more efficient. And even there's actually a lot of research going on in the hardware support for transactional memory. So I think a lot of people believe that to have a fully tenable transactional memory system that will perform up to expectations, um, you would need a combination of hardware and software support. Hmm. What, what would the hardware support look like? Um, one of the other active fields in parallel computing is figuring out if there is lots of parallelism and if there is lots of synchronization, how does that change the landscape for synchronization support in the hardware? Yeah, I can see that happening. I mean, you don't you don't get a lot of support from the hardware. and it knows a lot more than you do <laughs> about right. what's going on. So, for example, there's this thing called speculative lock elision, um, SLE. It's another. It's a little bit like transactional memory, but without um, without the kind of full featured language integration aspect to it. It's the idea is that it will kind of not acquire a lock until it actually detects that runtime that it needs to. And so you avoid some scalability and performance overhead um, when you're using ordinary locks. This is not transactional memory. It's just trying to speed up ordinary locking mechanisms. So there's, you know, there's a ton of research. But the really interesting thing that pe people listening can actually go out and use 
is we released the CTP of the library extensions I, I mentioned uh, in my bio that I've been working on. Uh, we released the CTP of what we call parallel extensions um, almost a month ago now. And you can actually download it on MSDN. And it kind of represents our thinking around the first two parts of the problems um, I mentioned earlier, which is identifying the parts of your program that can be run in parallel and actually representing them so that they can run in parallel. Hmm. Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 tools update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. So what do these parts look like? One of them is the TPL? Right. So the two major components are uh, PLink, which stands for Parallel Link, and Link is Language Integrated Query. You know, we released right. that with uh, Visual Studio 2008. Um, <clears throat> so that is a, a data parallel execution engine for link queries. So you take your link queries as they're written today, you make one slight modification, which you basically use this as parallel extension method. Use that, and it redirects your query to our execution engine, and it actually automatically parallelizes it and uses multiple cores. And then the second part is the Task Parallel Library, or TPL. This is for, you know, it gives you parallel for loops. Um, it gives you these task objects that you can create and manage yourself, uh, future objects. And it also comes with this kind of um, intelligent runtime that does more efficient scheduling of parallel work. Hmm. And so this is good for problems that you can't really express using link. You know, it's, it's actually um, hmm. surprising. If you, if you change the way you think about problems a little bit, you can usually retrofit them into a form that will be expressible in link, but sometimes it feels unnatural. Um, if you haven't seen it or if listeners haven't seen it, I encourage you to, to check out Luke Hoban's weblog, he has a ray tracer lit written entirely in link, and it's approximately, you know, 10 to 20 printed pages of one link query wow. that implements a ray tracer. Which is oh, link he wasn't uh, suggesting this is the way people should actually use link. It was just a thought experiment, but it is interesting. It kind of proves that you can do a lot with link that you didn't think you could do. I think it kind of proves that Luke has scary thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't. This is what I was saying earlier. Remember what I opened with? Sanity, guys. Yeah, <laughs> right. Go play your guitar. You're scaring <laughs> play me. Play your guitar. I should turn him on the guitar or something. <laughs> I'm a little worried about Luke at this point, but uh, gone off the deep end. Now he's focused on F sharp, so I'm not yeah. expecting it to get any better. It's amazing how much uh, thinking is going on inside of Microsoft around uh, these Lambda function-oriented structures. The whole idea uh, is become seems to be permeating through the team. Yeah, functional programming is um, 
You know, it's kind of, uh, it's been rediscovered by industry. I think academics and researchers have known for years that functional programming is great for a number of reasons. And I think over time, kind of the mainstream is picking up on some ideas and incorporating them one at a time into our languages to see what benefits they provide. Link, for example, um, you could really characterize Link as a DSL, uh, domain-specific language, that's really functional in nature that's just been embedded into C Sharp. Um, it really encourages a functional way of programming with Lambda expressions. You know, I think the future is definitely going to look a lot more functional than it does today. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems to be uh, pr- pr- perhaps rediscovered because of the concurrency demands that we're going to be facing very soon, mm-hmm. and we're already facing. Maybe that's yeah, maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why uh, you yeah, know, functional is. programming. No, I think it leads to a more maintainable, easier to understand program for many of the same reasons that functional programs are conducive to parallel execution. And what I mean by that is, in a functional program, in a strictly functional program, you know, in the Haskell sense, for example, where nothing can change, you know, once you have a variable declared, that variable can always be substituted with its value wherever you see it in your program. So you don't have to worry about race conditions. Is somebody changing this while I'm trying to interact with it? Because it's simply not permitted. Um, But this kind of rigid way of programming also leads to problems. You know, you you present that kind of programming model to a C-sharp programmer who's used to kind of changing state and writing variables and adding to lists and doing this kind of thing and, you know, writing to the console, writing to files, doing side effects all throughout the program. They'll kind of look at it and say, you know, these people are from a different planet. What are they talking about? Right. And so I don't think... You know, going a, f- a purely functional route is realistic for all programming exercises. Right. I think over time we'll incorporate a few ideas here, a few ideas there, and hopefully over time make it safer by incorporating these functional aspects. Well, one of the strengths I see in this functional programming model is this abstraction from the complexities of parallelism that I'm able to declaratively say, I need you to give me these results. And I actually don't care how you get them. I just hope you'll do them quickly for me. And that one of those ways might be highly parallel execution. Hmm. Right. Yes. It's funny. I was presenting at a conference uh, earlier this year, and I stood up and presented my work on uh, P-Link. And then somebody from Haskell stood up and presented their work on what they were calling data parallel Haskell. And afterwards, it became clear to everybody in the room that we were talking about the exact same thing. Yeah, right. Parallel link and data parallel Haskell, we were both talking about, well, how do we represent these kind of um, comprehensions, you know, filters, you know, we're saying where this and uh, select that and order by this and group by that. We were talking about the exact same thing. And it's interesting that these two communities have kind of grown up independently and now we're we're seeing them converge. Yeah, you've you've reached the same place. Mm-hmm. So jumping back into P Link, if I was to simply take a a a call to a database and run it through P Link, is that gonna do anything? Is it gonna break it? Well so P Link really is for the stuff that happens on the client machine. Okay. Not the stuff that happens on the server. So if you fire off a a query to the database, it is probably already using parallelism to execute it. If it's running SQL Server anyway. Right. For SQL Server, I think Oracle does this. I'm not quite sure. I'm sure Um, it does. But, yeah, I'm I'm sure Oracle does. Probably all leading databases do at this point. Um, But databases use kind of parallelism to execute individual queries that are coming in at the same time, you know, if you have multiple requests on the server. But they also use parallelism for single queries, too. So much in the same way P-Link breaks apart a single query to run on multiple cores, SQL Server will do the same. So let's say you queried SQL Server and pulled some data down to the client, some subset of a table on the server, and you want to join that with an XML document you have on disk, then P-Link will definitely come into play there. Just querying straight XML 
that also will use plink. Um, in memory data, you know, a lot of cases we see people have generated data uh, based on some simulation or something in memory and they want to query that data. Uh, plink will come in useful there. It's really anything that's in memory on the machine, plink is useful for. So, and it sounds like specifically when we're doing uh, heterogeneous joining, where I know I'm taking two very distinct different data sources and somehow combi- and combining them using link, using plink just inherently says run both these at once. Right. Yeah, it will it will kind of run them both at once, and then it will um, actually process the join in parallel as well. Um, so we use various techniques so that we can actually do a join uh, using all the CPUs on the machine. Same is true of any other operators. You know, we do parallel sorting. We do uh, parallel group buys. We do parallel sums if you're kind of counting up the, the numbers in, in a data input. Right. Every single link operator uh, will actually run in parallel uh, on plink. So what if I want to build a provider or, you know, some a source of data that could be called by plink? Is there something special I have to do? Today, all you need to do is uh, implement iNumerable of T. So plink can query any iNumerable of T data source. And that's just a, that's just a link thing, right? Right. Yeah. But we, so we use, this starts to get into the implementation details of plink, but if you think about what goes on when plink is executed, well, the first thing it has to do is it looks at kind of the structure of the query and figures out a plan about how it's going to execute this thing in parallel. But another thing that it needs to do is once it's done that, it needs to actually partition the data. Um, that's, that's how plink works fundamentally is it breaks apart the input across all the, the processors on the machine. So if you have eight processors, it will div- divide it into eight chunks, distribute the chunks, and then all these processors kind of work together to operate on the data in parallel. Now, if you have, uh, say, an array, we can use really efficient partitioning techniques because we know the length of it. We can index into individual elements. There are a lot of optimizations we can make there. If you just give us some plain old I enumerable T, that we don't recognize, we have to fall back to a less efficient implementation um, because all we can do is ask for a single enumerator, and then that single enumerator has to be shared across multiple cores. So in that case, it's a little less efficient. We still handle it, and we actually do some clever things internally to, to try to reduce the amount of synchronization that's involved. One thing we're, we're toying with and we're hoping to get feedback on this is it's not clear to me, at least, how many people out there actually write their own custom collections um, because we we had toyed with the idea of having a special interface you could implement that would allow you to actually plug in your own partitioning techniques. But that's really for the, the super user, and it's not clear to me how many people would actually use it. That is interesting, though. Yeah, but and I was thinking, hopefully few because we don't need a whole lot of custom collections. You know, I think we've got some pretty good ones already. The few guys who are, I, I, most people who are going to attempt to build this are probably going to get into trouble with it. Joe, do you guys get some wacky requests? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, they must be a challenge. I mean, at first, they must be a challenge to try to figure out why and and then just try to wrap your mind around what people are trying to do with this stuff. But Yeah. Um, They're not some, always immediately obviously wacky though right I mean, I, that's the other half that i was going to say then you must get some really interesting uh suggestions yeah we get a lot of interesting suggestions i think right now we would actually like to even hear the wacky suggestions because you know it's not clear right now what the right answer is for concurrency i think we're exploring some ideas we think that they're promising but we're being a little bit conservative in what we do. The instant we ship something in, in the framework, it's kind of, you know, we can't take it back, right? Yeah, it's permanent. Yeah. Exactly. There are probably some things in the .NET Framework 1.0 that we would take back if we could, but we can't. And so we have to live with that. And the more legacy that accumulates over time, the more antiquated framework feels, the more surface area is, the more there is for people to understand. And it's just those kinds of things kind of be death by a thousand paper cuts over time. So <laughs> we really want to be careful in what we add. So even the wacky ideas, we'll, 
we'll filter out the, the wacky ideas. So if you're afraid, afraid your idea is wacky, you should submit it anyways, and at the very least, we'll get a good laugh out of it. <laughs> so is there anything else besides STM that um, and P-Link and uh, the things that we've talked about that you guys are uh, focused on, or are these the technologies that are sort of making up the, the core of your work? Those are the, the technologies making up the core of the work. There's a lot of work we've done under the covers to do efficient scheduling of work. It turns out that the techniques you use, like the CLR thread pool today, the way that it manages work simply doesn't scale to a massive number of processors. Yeah, yeah it's funny how many things uh, were naturally bounded that in the design of the operating yeah. system and in the languages and so forth that you just don't think about why you'd want to change those. You know, the sort of magic 25-thread number right. comes mm -hmm. to mind. Yeah. And, and as soon as those boundaries are lifted, all kinds of new problems are introduced. Yeah, actually, I, I hesitate to mention this because it's kind of a a big uh, whoops, <laughs> I guess. Uh, you know, Windows actually currently doesn't support more than 64 processors. Really? And can you guess what the reason is? It sounds like a four-bit number somewhere. Exactly. We, <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody at some point shows a pointer to represent the thread affinity mask um, that is used, or the CPU affinity mask that's, that is used to say this uh, process or this thread can only run on this subset of CPUs. And so the way that's represented is by using on a 64-bit machine, you have 64 bits, if it can only run on the first CPU, you set the first bit. If it can run on the first and the second, you set the first and the second bit, and so on. Oh, man. And you got to know, at some point, some guy said, 64 processors is more than enough. We'll never need more than that. Exactly. <laughs> Just like 640K, right? That's right. Well, you could make a list of the number of times you said that'll be enough. Yes. Right. And so there's, there's silly things like that you know, that surprisingly, there aren't any other cases, at least that I know of in Windows, as to why Windows can't support more. Obviously, this is going to change um, in probably the next release, I would guess. Um, yeah. But there are just fundamental implementation things that that come up, like, you know, the scheduler for processes or threads on Windows. Fundamentally, you have one queue of work, and it needs to go to any of the available CPUs. Right. And when you have one shared list like that, it becomes a bottleneck. And so, you know, Windows has already done a bunch of work to distribute kind of the runnable work queues onto the processors. And um, that's kind of a similar design that we're pursuing uh, versus the thread pool today, which has one kind of global queue of work. And then all of the processors look to this global queue to find when new work is available, and they kind of steal it. But obviously, that requires all these these CPUs to to centralize at this one shared list of work, and that becomes a bottleneck very quickly once you have fine-grained work items, so that the the rate at which the threads have to to go to this list to find new work increases for fine-grained work items, and also when you have many more of these threads trying to access the list at once, it just doesn't scale. So one of the other things that we're doing is something called work stealing. Um, and it's it's really hard to explain kind of in words. It, it helps to have pictures. But the general idea is that every thread in the system, and we like to have one thread per processor unless they block, each thread in the system um, has its own work queue. And when those threads are executing work, when new work needs to get queued, it goes into that local queue of work. And so a thread really can live in isolation from the rest of the system and just continue processing from its local queue, and it doesn't have to acquire locks. There's no synchronization. But then occasionally one of these threads will run out of work, and it needs to ensure that no other threads in the system are, are you know, overloaded. So it will go out and search and find work, and this is where that name work stealing comes from. It will steal work from other threads in the system, and help them along in the execution of this work. And this tends to scale really nicely because there isn't a shared central bottleneck and the synchronization is really um, cheap and minimal. 
Well, and it's a great compensatory model. You never know how much effort a given block of work is going to be on a given thread mm. until it is a lot of work. And it, so the, the sort of prefetch scheduling naturally <laughs> falls into a, a limit. It doesn't know how hard that's going to be. This model, you can get yourself into trouble and then get yourself back out because as other things finish up, they're going to go in and take up some of that work. That's, that, I mean, it's a, a totally different way of thinking about the problem. So much of parallelism is about planning, about scheduling. Right. The idea that we admit we're wrong, that I would actually start executing a given problem on one thread and then have other threads step in as they saw opportunities to do more of the work mm-hmm. just changes up the model. Yes. Yeah, in fact, other, uh, other things change too. For example, you might be willing to actually waste some work. It may be the case that you have one thread chugging away at some problem, and maybe, you know, a good example is, it's kind of an esoteric example, but in the AI space, often you're doing kind of game tree analysis to try to find an optimal solution, like a chess solver or something. Right. You may have one thread that's doing a bunch of work, and if you have a 64 processor machine and only one thread is busy, you might be willing to burn some power and use those other 63 processors to do potentially wasted work, which is to search the, the game tree, different areas of the game tree, um, to try to find the optimal solution. And you'll end up, if you counted up the number of CPU cycles in aggregate that were used to solve the problem, it could be the case that it's 64 times what you would have done otherwise. Um, but that's okay because you're interested in reducing wall clock time. It's not right. really about optimizing for the number of cycles that you're spending uh, on a particular problem. It's more about giving the appearance that the problem was solved quicker by reducing the wall clock time by doing more things at once. Yeah, and you're willing to take on some inefficiency for that. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that sequential performance isn't important either. Um, but it does, over time, the more processors you get, becomes a little less important and representing your problems in a way that uh, can fully maximize parallelism starts to become more important. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Joe, um, before the show started, Richard and I were talking about memory management and how um, the the for a true 64-bit memory manager in the .NET framework to work, it, the whole memory management has to be completely rewritten because of uh, you know the whole idea that you could now let the garbage collector uh, just sit back and allocate 12 gigs of RAM. And then all of a sudden that 12 gigs of RAM has to be garbage collected. Oh my God. That's a big problem. So, but clearly, um, that's going to have to happen in some way. And we were just speculating and thinking in, uh, that, uh, that software transactional memory might be, might be a way around that. Um, do you see the STM and in the, in the work you guys are doing in parallelism as sort of, um, uh, helping us move to a 64-bit world? I think per- parallelism certainly helps with garbage collection. Uh, there's been a lot of research into parallel garbage collection and actually um, using multiple cores to collect massive amounts of memory and scan massive amounts of memory. If you have, if it's ever the case that you have 12 gigabytes of memory um on your system and you've actually allocated 12 gigabytes of memory and the GC needs to scan that. Yeah. Certainly that's, that may result in a little bit of a pause time. <laughs> just a bit. Yeah. yeah. Hang on just a moment. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, I think the number I used was 64 gigabytes, but you know, okay. well, that would be even worse. <laughs> but uh, to that point, well, I guess the first question is, in this concept of transactional memory, are we talking about memory in the .NET address space, or could it be external to that space? Protected by uh, transactional memory? Yeah. Well, there's there's actually a system by uh, University of Rochester that you can download today that's for native code. 
so it's for C++ and manages uh, native heaps through transactional memory. Turns out, implementation-wise, there are a lot of challenges with that, but I think I think a lot of people would like it to be the case that you could have managed and native STMs that kind of interoperate and work together. Um, but at the very least, I think, you know, Right around the same time that the, the technology matures to the point where we could have a managed STM, you'll undoubtedly also see native STMs on the market. Um, Intel has been doing their thread building blocks, which is a library you can download. I'm not sure if you have to buy it or whether you can download it for free, but it's kind of the one of the native equivalents to the work that we're doing to make it easier to express parallelism. So I think there's also, there's a lot of people in the community that are interested in doing parallelism in native code. And so you'll see, you'll see a lot of work going on there. Uh, but going back to the, the GC question, um, so parallelism, we actually ship a server GC in, um, for the CLR. And it actually will use multiple cores um, to, to collect. So it actually fully utilizes the machine when it does a collection uh, to, to, to speed up the collection process. But, you know, it's unfortunate that it always uses the entire machine. It's perfect for a server, but on a client, you may have multiple apps that are executing uh, at a time, and it may not be the case that you actually want to use the full machine to perform a collection right now. And um, so we're working on coming up with better models of something in between what you have on the desktop and what you have on the server. And so it's another area that we're looking at in the future to improve. But, yeah, the idea of, I guess, processors splitting up the entire memory space and saying each one of you gets a chunk to work on to do the GC work is pretty powerful. That's what's going to get us over this hump. But that does require a significant rewrite in the architecture of the memory management module. In the GC in particular. Thankfully, we, we do have a GC that supports it, but I think to come up with something that, for example, uses adaptive heuristics to only use whatever part of the machine you'd, you'd like it to use rather than fully saturating it with a garbage collection, right. um, that will require a bit of thought and work, certainly. Well, that's why they have smart guys like you working on it. So I'm I'm looking at some samples of uh, uh, TPL code, mm-hmm. and and like I said, it's just a replacement for the for or the while using parallel, which is fascinating to me. It's just it's obvious to me at least, but I, I imagine some of the folks are a little baffled by this. Is that it has to be the right uh, code executing in the loop to actually parallelize it? If you're running through a set of data and building a string. You just can't parallelize that. Yeah. You you have this mm. unique entity right. living inside of that loop that has to be worked against serially. But if there's if it's an array, if there's multiple items working simultaneously, they could all run at once. Right. Yeah. So figuring out first of all, figuring out which loops to parallelize is it's not always straightforward. I mean, you, we do a lot of work to make sure that the overhead of a parallel for loop is minimal on say a single CPU machine. Um Possibly uh, by looking at the size of the input. This is something that we don't do today. It's a little bit difficult to make judgments about whether to parallelize based on the size of the input because you may only have an, a loop from zero to eight, but it could be the case that each of those eight iterations takes a minute to run, and so you want to run that in parallel. Or it could be the case that you're adding up eight numbers or doing minimal amount of work that would be dominated by introduction of parallelism, in which case we probably wouldn't want to parallelize. So figuring out which loops to parallelize is kind of a difficult problem, uh, first and foremost. Secondly, you need to make sure that the body is actually safe to run in parallel. So if you're doing something like modifying some shared state or uh, working on a, a collection that could be modified, then you need to be careful about that. And so this is another area in the future where I think functional programming will help us out quite a bit. Um, F-sharp, for example, gives you the ability to say this data structure is immutable. In fact, by default, data structures are immutable in F-sharp. And so you can kind of say, well, if I'm working with this data structure inside of the loop body, well, I know for sure that it can't be modified because the language prevents it from being modified. Right. 
And there are similar things that, you know, if you're performing side effects in the loop body, uh, is it safe for them to actually execute potentially out of order? Right. Um, these kinds of things are tricky and subtle issues uh, that you need to be careful about. Yeah, and the problem is that they would work 95% of the cases. And right. then you'd have, and then every so often you'd get wacky errors, just bizarre functionality because you get into these concurrency collisions. Yeah. So, for example, on, on P-Link, um, something that may surprise people, and we're looking to get feedback on this too, is we, we had to make a decision. Um, when you have, say, an array that you query through P-Link, uh, is it the case that we should preserve the output ordering? So, for example, if you had an array that was 0, 1, 2, 3, and all you do is multiply each element by 2, is the case that we should have 0, 2, 4, and so on uh, in the output, or are we free to scramble the, the input as we execute in order to achieve the most efficient execution? Well, and, and even if you did scramble, is it cheaper than to sort it afterwards? Is it cheaper? Like, I'm just thinking, go ahead, scramble it, and we'll, fix, we'll sort it out later. Right. But that actually nets less time. Right. Well, it depends. So... In some cases, we can actually preserve the, the input ordering pretty easily and pretty cheaply. In some cases, we would actually have to sort the input at the end. Right. And so the answer is we don't preserve the order by default. But we do have a flag that you can pass uh, to the library that says, for this particular query, please preserve the order for me. And so today it's an opt-in model. Um, right. We're considering changing that to an opt-out model Hmm. i.e. we would preserve order, and then if you knew that order didn't matter, you would kind of set a flag that said, it's okay to scramble the input for the sake of uh, efficiency. Yeah, to go faster. Right. And the original decision was made because we figured parallel link, I mean, the priority there should be we want to run as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Over time, as more people try to use the system and get surprised by the fact that the output ordering is completely scrambled and has no relation to the input ordering. We're starting to realize it may be a subtle, um, a subtlety that people miss. And one of the reasons why people may miss it is if you have a small query and you run it, it just may happen to run on one thread. And we use, because of the dynamic work stealing that I mentioned earlier, it's not always the case that it will run on multiple threads. It's a very dynamic part of the system. Yeah, it depends on what's available, and did it make sense to do so? Right. So if it runs on one thread, then you're going to get the output, in all likelihood, in the right order. And right. so you may see that and depend on that, and then you start deploying that to a 16 CPU machine maybe a year after you've written your application, and it starts breaking. Right. That, that's a bad situation. Or the set size grows, and now it's a, it makes more sense for it to paralyze it more thoroughly and changes the order up. Mm-hmm. Right, but people... People just need to understand that, and it unfortunately it's not evident in the in the programming model that it could do this. Right, and it, and it, it, this is this is more a problem of people's. Some we've always assumed that given an order of input, I'll get the same order of output. Right, and people have experience with sequential link, which does actually right. preserve the the ordering. And they also have expectations about how they're going to interact with their language, right? And that's one of the biggest. Uh, the biggest hurdles that I had to get over with, with multi-threading. And, and it brings me to this question, which is, is it a challenge for you guys to constantly have to uh, work within the, well, I won't say the limitations, but the constraints of, of Visual Studio and, and uh, the languages when you're dealing with um, multi-threaded technologies? Do you ever, like, have a, you, you know, you wish you had X as part of the language, but that would be too fundamental a change. Is it hard to sort of work within the constraints of the language? It, it is. Um, I think there are a few dimensions to that. One is, you know, yes, it would be easier to throw everything away, start from scratch, create new libraries, create new tools, create new languages. Um, but, you know, it would be easier from a, a theoretical sense. You know, we we could do away with a lot of problems that we have. But in the end, it would be a lot more work for us. It would be a fundamental change for customers. And at this point, 
it's not clear that this would be acceptable. I mean, it really needs to be compelling for people to completely change everything they're doing, change the way that they're programming, change the libraries they're used to, the tools they're used to, to switch to something new. There are very few inflection points like that in our industry. You know, if you look at .NET, that was one of them for Windows programming. Java was certainly one of them. But, you know, .NET wasn't that compelling on the first day. Yeah. Going back to 2000, 2001, it was a real struggle. I mean, it's abundantly clear now. Right. But we had, we put a lot of work into really proving that this was going to be a better model, that, that it actually getting success, impairing people's productivity for an extended period of time to get them up to this new model so they can actually have that success. That's a big commitment. Yeah. There, there will always be skeptics and, you know, but in the end, I think that we're not fundamentally handicapped with the languages and libraries we have today. One of the challenges is just, you know, there's always the evolution versus revolution question. Right. You take what you have today and evolve it to the next generation, or do you try to start a revolution and create something entirely new? And I think everybody struggles with that, especially when it comes to concurrency and parallelism, because it's just fundamentally a difficult problem, and it does change the way people approach software development. And we have libraries and languages that were approached from a certain standpoint, from a certain perspective, and that perspective is changing. And do the old assumptions still hold in the new world? And when does the new world begin? You know, two cores, things aren't fundamentally different, right? You can you can find enough stuff to do. You can index your the files on your disk while you're reading your email. Uh, while now, there's you're always playing. a foreground and a background task. Right. But once you get to four four cores, you're going to start to notice, hey, you know, the machine's not being fully utilized, eight cores and beyond. But when when is the turning point? And is it necessary that all programs actually fully utilize the machine? Or is it okay that hmm. some of them just don't? You know, right. games, for example, is it... Game, gaming on the PC, as far as I can tell today, is kind of not nearly what it used to be back in the 90s when I was, you know, when I used to be playing games on the PC all the time. And is it the case that there may be some killer apps that really just figure out how to fully utilize 64 processors to develop or to deliver really compelling user experiences that are just beyond what you can imagine today? And is that enough? But you'll still have, you know, Excel, which is running on a couple cores, uh, and Word, which is really not using all the machine. It, it's really, it's hard to predict at this point. Uh, now we're getting into the whole debate about how people use their computers. Right. You know, I think the one thing you could say about games is that generally when you're playing a game, that's the only thing running on your machine. It takes your entire screen space, takes your entire attention. Where Office is usually a fully parallel task. I have oh, several Word docs and several Excel spreadsheets open at once. And Outlook is always open. Yeah, so is it, you know, for example, Outlook could be doing AI in the background, kind of doing natural language processing on all of your emails. And you know, Word may be doing the same for the documents on your system. And you could have self-learning programs that are using all of those cores and doing really fancy things. The thing to me always is, um, actually, Intel has this this category of uh, programs that they're, they're looking at, uh, recognition, mining, and synthesis. They call it RMS. These are, they actually have documents on this, and it's kind of the next generation of computer experience that they're thinking that uh, multi-core will actually deliver. And it includes all these sorts of things, you know, better analysis and, but they're very subtle. And I, yeah, to me, a game that really delivers a great user experience is just so obvious. A a version of Outlook that's doing some clever uh, analysis of your email communications, it's not clear to me at least how that translates into substantial benefit that helps sell computers and new versions of Office. Right. Well, and I also think that different people using products differently uh, could be translated into utilization of the machine. If you're a totally Outlook-centric guy and crazy about all those rules and so forth, Outlook could gradually learn, hey, 
I deserve more processing power because my user is pretty intent on me and I'm going to grab up more than somebody who just looks at email once a, a day and mm-hmm. just doesn't need all those features. Yeah, exactly. It's a very magical way of thinking, it really actually, is. that, that just thinking the programs thing. would adapt to utilize the available hardware. And I, and I keep going back to your to your work stealing model, where the idea that that Outlook would say, "Hey, I'm I'm getting enough priority here that that I'm going to ask another thread to come in and find some work to do." Mm-hmm. And so long as there's work to do, which requires it requires the programmer to express the potential work. Uh, today we. When we write our programs, we write them in terms of what must happen. Whereas in the future, it's it's kind of more like what could happen if we had the available compute power to do something useful. And we ter- we we call this latent parallelism, right? We want programmers to express as much possible parallelism as possible, hmm. even though most of it will translate into sequential execution or it'll be bundled up and it will run on a smaller number of cores than the actual units of work that are available. But if you have lots of latent parallelism in your application, then as you start to scale, if you're using one or run on multiple processors, if you're using one of these dynamic work stealing algorithms, then it just so happens that, you know, it's kind of like the old days when you, when you run on a new computer, next generation computer, more of that latent parallelism actually gets realized at runtime and actually uses more processors. That's what we'd like. That's that's the direction we'd like to go in. Um, and it enables these new kinds of experiences that we were just talking about, or has the potential to. I, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's easy, and not everybody out there is a NLP expert, and certainly not everybody out there is an NLP, how-do-I-do-it-in-parallel expert. <laughs> but we have a ways to go, but I think we're starting to put some fundamental building blocks in place. Joe, you know, there's one thing that's been nagging at me for a long time, which is the whole idea of um, of affinity. You mm-hmm. know, you can set affinity to a particular processor and or a particular core in a processor, I should say. And it's always been my uh, belief, my understanding, that when you do that, there's really no guarantee that it's going to happen, but it's like a really strong suggestion to the OS to... To, to, to stick this thread to a particular core. Is that true? Uh, yes and no. There's two kinds of affinity. Uh, there's one called ideal processor, and this is sometimes called soft affinity. So effectively what this is is every thread is given one uh, when it's created, and you can control it. You can set it through Win32 APIs. What that says is to the OS scheduler, Given a choice to run on any of the processors, this is where I would like to run. But if that processor is busy when it comes, when my turn comes up, schedule me somewhere else. Okay. And then the next time it will again do the same thing. It will try to schedule it on its ideal processor and only if that's busy will it go somewhere else. And the theory being that that preferred processor has more items in the cache that are relevant to it and so forth. Right. So scheduling on the same processor is good for locality. Um, it also helps to, to load balance across the machine. If you remember, before I was, I was noting that Windows did a lot of work to kind of to, to make the scheduling algorithm more scalable, and one of the ways they did this is to, to maintain more information on the CPUs themselves uh, or per CPU rather than having this global queue. So it helps to, to distribute the load across the processors when it comes time to scheduling work. Then, so the second thing is there's hard affinity which you can set for a process. You can, you can actually see this in Task Manager. If you go to Task Manager as of, uh, I think, Windows Server 2003, you can actually manually pin a process down to a processor. Or you can do it on an individual thread basis within a process. And this actually constrains the system to run on, or the process or the thread, to run on a subset of the CPUs. And it's either... You can pin it down to one CPU, two, CPU many CPUs. It, it's entirely up to you. And wow, this is usually go. this is usually used just for locality reasons, like you were saying, Richard. Um, it's also used in NUMA machines. So this is uh, non-uniform memory architecture machines. Um, these are kind of 
esoteric high-end machines, but it turns out AMD is pursuing this for their, their future multi-core processors, as far as I can tell, where there's actually multiple memory banks, and you have clusters of processors that access their local memory banks, and only when there's cross-bank communication, uh, when that happens, it's much more expensive than when when processors are accessing their local memory banks. So you'd like to pin down threads running on particular processors so that they don't migrate across these these banks. That's one of the more common uses of hard affinity. In general, it's not a good idea to right. mess with them because, you know, the scheduler... That's what the OS does, yeah. Right, exactly. There are a lot of smart guys that figure out how to make scheduling most efficient on Windows. And as soon as you start putting handcuffs on them, they can't do their job. So when in doubt, don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, Joe. Is there any uh, resources you want to point us to or... Or anything coming up that you want to uh, talk about real quick before we before we show uh, before sure. we turn off? So I would encourage everybody to visit the uh, Parallel Computing Development Center, the Dev Center that we just launched on MSDN. It's uh, msdn.microsoft.com/concurrency. Easy to remember, but I assume we can also provide a, a link for for people. I would watch that uh, as we release additional documents, best practices, new CTPs, that sort of thing. You can go there and pick it up. Uh, we'll also, we have some forums that you can visit if you have questions, if you download the Parallel Extensions CTP and play around with it, which I encourage everybody to do. We also have a team blog, uh, which is blogs.msdn.com slash team. We should also provide a link for that, but we post regularly there. I mean, I think we launched it three weeks ago, and we already have something like 12 posts up there, everything ranging from how to use the library to general concurrency topics to implementation details for the geeks out there. So I, I would encourage everybody to check out those resources. And, of course, I have a blog, too, which you mentioned at the beginning, which I'm trying to figure out the division of posting to the team blog versus mine, but I'll definitely keep mine active. And that's it for me. All right, Joe, thank you very much. It's been an eye opener and I can't wait to, I can't wait to get an 80 core PC and, and have some really good tools for messing around with it. I'm just going to have so much fun. I can't tell you. Totally. Thanks for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a